Our uh, scriptural reading is from the book of, of John, John chapter 5, and uh, we haven't done it for a couple weeks, but I'm actually going to, uh, to read the entire chapter um, in order to keep it in its proper context, and, uh, and I'm not going to ask you to stand uh, this time as I do that. Please stand up in your hearts, um, but, uh, but let's, let's have a look at, uh, at John chapter 5 together, reading here from the ESV Bible. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There was a gate in Jerusalem, sorry, there, there, was, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going in, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed. And walk. They asked him, Who is the man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. <clears throat> Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. <clears throat> the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. 
If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. You've probably heard it before, and not just in Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest ye be judged. There is perhaps, perhaps no verse that is more misinterpreted and misused in the entire Bible. You might have heard it used when you called an, a, an unbeliever to repentance and salvation in Jesus Christ. Even if you were gentle and kind in your presentation of the gospel, those who reject much of the rest of Christ's teaching are quick to lay hold of this verse and use it as a shield so that the words that you speak do not penetrate to their hearts. You might even have heard, judge not lest you, be lest you be judged when challenging a professing Christian whose beliefs and or actions do not line up with God's revealed truth. Even if you faithfully and lovingly try to redirect them and try to, to help them to see that, that what, they're, what they're claiming to believe, that though they claim to believe in God, it is not reflected in their actual beliefs or in their actions. And they will also be quick to say, judge not lest you be judged, as though that would, would somehow justify their position. And I hope we all know the folly of, of pulling a verse out of context and trying to make it say something that it doesn't say. Jesus obviously can't be condemning all judgment because Jesus commands us to judge in the very same passage. Throughout the Bible, we are commanded to judge. The issue, however, is knowing how to judge, judging with right judgment. In John chapter 5, the text before us this morning, Jesus is being judged. He's being judged by the Pharisees, for sin because of his actions on the Sabbath, and for blasphemy because he is making himself equal with God. The Pharisees 
aren't judging with right judgment. In fact, their judgment judges them. In their attempt to prosecute Jesus, they are condemning themselves. Jesus has just shown in the previous section that his words and his works and his authority prove that he is God. He says in verses 31 and 32, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Jesus covers the same ground in John chapter 8, which we'll read about in a few weeks. This is meant to be a mirror image for John chapter 5. John says in, Jesus says in John 8, 14, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Well, he accuses the Pharisees of judging according to the flesh. And even though his own witness is sufficient, Jesus says in John, in John 8, 18, that his isn't the only witness, that the Father himself is a witness. He says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Remember that the theme in John's gospel is witnesses to Christ. John says that he wrote these things so that you might believe, and that in believing you might have life. John uses the word witness 27 times, far more than any other book of the Bible. And in John 5, verses 31 to 47, Jesus calls witnesses as his defense. He calls John the Baptist, he calls his own works, he calls God the Father, and he calls the Word of God as witnesses. These witnesses vindicate Jesus, and they also prosecute the Pharisees. So first, Jesus calls on the witness of John the Baptist. In verse 33, he says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. John the Baptist bore witness that Jesus is the Son of God. In John chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, we read, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist performed an essential function as the forerunner for Jesus. His witness for Jesus started even before he was born. As he leapt for joy in his mother's womb at the sound of Mary's voice in Luke 1.39. John the Baptist was the one prophesied in Isaiah 40, chapter 3. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He quoted this in Matthew 3, 3. So how did John the Baptist prepare the way? By proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 3, 2. And by baptizing people with a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Mark 1.4, there was no one on earth who was greater than John, Matthew 11.11, but Jesus ranked immeasurably above him. 
John testified in John 1.27 that he wasn't even worthy to untie the latches of Jesus' sandals. But it's John's statement in John 1.29 that is perhaps his most beautiful declaration, his most beautiful witness as to who Jesus is. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now with this, with this purpose being fulfilled after he had baptized Jesus in order to fulfill all righteousness in Matthew 3.15, John would quickly fade into the background. He would, would soon be, be killed, would be martyred by Herod. But just as John is a, is a witness for Jesus, he is also a witness against the Pharisees. Jesus says in John 5.33, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. The Pharisees had heard about John's ministry and sent priests and Levites in order to question him, asking him who he was. He told them plainly, I am not the Christ. He also told them that he is not Elijah. And then he told them why he came. He said he came to prepare the way. A little later, as people from the entire region were coming to hear John because his fame had grown so much, many were coming and confessing their sins and being baptized by John in the Jordan. And along with those people came Pharisees and Sadducees. They had heard about John and his ministry. They had heard what he taught, but they did not repent. So John said to them in Matthew 3, 8, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus repeatedly referred also to the Pharisees as a brood of vipers. John went on in Matthew 3, 9, Do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. This rebuke also was repeated by Jesus against the Pharisees. But John the Baptist had even more for them. He said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So guess what? Jesus used this metaphor as well. But Jesus goes on in John 5, 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from men, but I say these things that you may be saved. As God incarnate, Jesus did not need the testimony of men, even a man like John the Baptist. He said this in John 2, 24 and 25. That's why when he didn't entrust himself to those who claimed to believe in him because he knew all people and he did no one to bear witness about him because he knew what was in man. And similarly in 1 John 5, 9, we read that, that if, we bear, if we receive the witness from man, the witness of God is greater. This was in sharp distinction to the Pharisees who received glory from one another and did not seek the glory that comes from God alone. Sorry, from the only God, verse 44. Jesus didn't need John's testimony. He said these things for their benefit, 
in order that they might be saved. His purpose in this indictment was evangelistic. He was speaking in terms that they would understand. Jesus here was, was, was using this, this man as a witness. It was not just as a fulfillment of prophecy. It was not just to fulfill righteousness that John was sent as a forerunner. It was sent so that people would be saved. So Jesus here condescended to use the witness of a man. And I'm, I'm reminded here of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 16 and following, where Paul lists his apostolic credentials. So please turn to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In verses 16 and following, Paul, saying he's a fool, he does so, lists the things that, that prove that he is an apostle. Now, in, in a parallel form to the ministry of Jesus, the apostle Paul didn't need to do this. He was an apostle no matter what the Corinthians thought about him. But he laid these things down to, to demonstrate to them in hopes that they would come to repentance, in hopes that they would see what it really means to be one who is sent by God. So what sort of things does Paul list in 2 Corinthians 11? Does he list the miracles that he performed or the masses who were converted under his ministry or the churches that he had planted? Not at all. He lists none of those witnesses. Instead, he lists his trials. He says that, that he is a better servant of Christ because of his far more imprisonments, his beatings, his troubles. He lists the trials that he faced. He boasts in his weakness. If any human being would be justified in listing the good deeds that he had performed, it would be the Apostle Paul. But instead, he boasts in his weakness so that God would get the glory. And he does this in order to, to show the Corinthians just how far they were from the truth with their behavior. And Jesus, in our passage this morning, shows the Pharisees how far they were from the truth because of their behavior. Now, if, if, if somebody comes to you being critical and somebody comes to you questioning, maybe even going so far as to question whether you are legitimately a Christian or not. Where do you go? What, what testimony do you bear? Do you list your accomplishments? You know, maybe you say, oh, I've, I've got a, a master's in divinity. Do you list your good deeds? Do you list the number of times that, that you have shared the gospel with somebody? Do you list the, the amount of time that you spend in God's word? Instead, we need to be like Christ. We need to be motivated to be like Christ as the Apostle Paul was. He wanted to look like Christ. He wanted to be like Christ. So don't speak 
of your accomplishments and don't look for others to give you pats on the back. Any good deeds that are done with this motivation will be, turned, will be burned up on the day of judgment like wood and hay and straw. Jesus goes on in John 5.35 saying that John was a burning and a shining lamp and you're willing to rejoice for a while in his light. As William Hendrickson explains, just as a lamp attracts moths, so the Baptist attracted crowds of people. Like moths to the flame who would be burned up by the testimony that he bore against them. Even Herod was happy to listen to Jesus, sorry, listen to John for a little while. But as we know, Herod eventually imprisoned him and had him killed. The Pharisees went to hear John preach, but they never came to repentance. They heard what Jesus taught too, but they never came to repentance. All except for possibly Nicodemus. Now, throughout history, people have, have drawn themselves to powerful preachers. They've gathered in masses to hear them. When George Whitfield went to New England in the 18th century, people would come literally by the tens of thousands to Boston Common in order to listen to his preaching. And among those people were, was Benjamin Franklin. But Benjamin Franklin, instead of, of being concerned about the message of salvation that, that Whitfield was preaching, concerned himself more with trying to calculate how many people had gathered into that area to hear him. And as an aside, it's amazing that it's, it's I'd say, almost a miracle that George Whitfield was able to preach to 30,000 people in Boston Common without any amplification. But here was Benjamin Franklin hearing these words and not coming to salvation. In fact, he and Whitfield became friends. But Franklin never turned away from his deism, and he never turned away from his, his occultic following of Freemasonry. Similarly, in the 19th century, C.H. Spurgeon gathered people en masse to hear him preach in the, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Thousands of people would come every week to hear him preach, many of whom never came to salvation. And also in our day, unbelievers listen regularly to podcasts of men like John MacArthur and Paul Washer, although I wonder how an unconverted person could possibly listen to, enjoy listening to Paul Washer. But why do they do this? Simply because they like hearing the next best thing. Because they, they, they enjoy hearing things that are popular. And they want to be in the know. And quite often they fill their heads with all kinds of solid biblical truth that will serve as nothing except an indictment against them on the day of judgment. 
You can, list, you can listen to 10 sermons a day, but if it is not affecting your heart or changing your behavior, you are just heaping up judgment on yourself. And then in verse 36, Jesus declares that the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Now, as clear and as powerful as the testimony of John was, it wasn't just the preaching of a mere man that vindicated Jesus, and it wasn't the preaching of a mere man that would judge them. Jesus also presented the witness of works, declaring, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. When Jesus performed powerful miracles, he's providing a glimpse of his omnipotence. He is showing himself to be God. When he has mercy on people, he is, he is showing a glimpse of the divine nature. He's showing a glimpse of his great love that would be seen most clearly in a cruel Roman cross. But remember, it's not just like father, like son. Jesus is demonstrating that they're ontologically one, that they have the same nature. Jesus is showing himself to be the Lord. He said in verse 19 of this chapter, For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Jesus said to Philip in John 14, 11, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, we spent the last two weeks on this, so I'm just going to touch on it here. But the Father raises the dead, and so does the Son, proving that Jesus is God. The Father has life in himself, and has given the Son life in himself, proving that Jesus is God. The Father is worthy of our worship, and Jesus is worthy of our worship, proving that Jesus is God. And Jesus chose these things, as we saw a few weeks ago, he chose to do these things on the Sabbath to show himself that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He's showing that just as the Father did not rest from his providential governance of the universe, so also Jesus performed works of mercy on the Sabbath. J.C. Rowell says that, that though my father rested, from the, rested on the seventh day from his work of creation, he never rested for a moment from his providential government of the world and from his merciful work of supplying the daily needs of all his creatures. Likewise, the son says, I also work, I do work of mercy on the Sabbath day. I do not break the fourth commandment when I heal the sick any more than my father breaks it when he causes the sun to rise and the grass to grow on the Sabbath. With that authority, he is demonstrating that God made the Sabbath for man and not man for the Sabbath. He is showing what the Sabbath is all about. As he said in Matthew 12, 12, when the Pharisees tried to entrap him for healing the man with the withered hand, Jesus said, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And here J.C. Ryle explains that Jesus clears the day of rest from the false and superstitious teaching of the Jews about the right way of, of observing it. He shows us clearly that works of necessity and works of mercy are no breach of the fourth commandment. And again, these indictments serve 
these witnesses serve as an indictment against the Pharisees who by the traditions of men broke the commandments of God. It revealed their heart towards God and his law, and it revealed their heart towards their fellow man. Instead of rejoicing over the miracle and rejoicing over the fact that a man had been made whole, the Pharisees used this as an opportunity to persecute Jesus. And so after this, this first issue here in, in John 5, 17, Jesus says to them, my father is working until now, and so I am working. We saw that when Jesus healed men on the Sabbath, told them, healed the man on the Sabbath and told him to take up his mat, he was bringing himself into direct competition, in direct contravention of the, the Pharisees and their legalistic, pharisaical traditions. Now, brothers and sisters, supposed brothers and sisters, you can spend all day Sunday reading your Bible, but if you still hate your wife, you are proving that you hate God. You can pray for hours every day and be no closer to God than a fence post. You can lay all kinds of external rules and regulations down that don't require any change of heart, but still be completely separate from God. You can avoid TV and the movies and certain types of music and junk food. You can homeschool your kids and discipline your kids, but still be unsaved. Jane's dad did all of these things long before he ever came to Christ. But thankfully, he now sees. He has come to repentance, and he does many of these same things, but instead of, of because of a, a legalistic adherence to an external set of rules and regulations, or because, of, because somebody else is imposing pressure on him, he does it because he loves God and because he loves people. The best measure of the heart is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. How do you respond in trials? How do you respond when somebody is rude to you? Are you characterized by behavior that looks more like Jesus or more like the devil in those times? Now, I'm not talking about perfection here. We all fall short. But are you characterized by a godly response and growth in the same? Would the people that are closest to you say, I see the fruit of of the Spirit in your life? Would they say, I see you responding with, with joy and patience in the midst of a trial? Would they see you when somebody is, is rude to you and disrespectful to you? Would they see you instead responding with, with love to this other person? 
and kindness and goodness to this other person. I know even this very week, I was convicted of my own failure in this area. And I had to confess to God and I had to confess to people where I had failed. But another key fruit of the Holy Spirit is what you do when your sin is exposed. When your sin is exposed, either through a brother or sister coming alongside you or by the direct conviction of the Holy Spirit, do you nosedive into depression? Or do you run to the cross? When your sin is exposed, do you attempt to list your own righteous works? Or do you instead run to the cross? As Robert Murray McShane said, for every time you look at yourself and your sin, look ten times at Christ and the cross. Nothing that we can do will ever, ever commend ourselves to holy God. We are as desperate, we are as needy of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ today as we were in the day when we first came to him, as in the day when we were first saved. And so I'm I think I'm going to stop it here, but I want you to think about how you're doing so far. Where do you measure up? When we look at these, these witnesses, the witness of, of John the Baptist, who called to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Have you done that? And I'm not just talking about have you done that once when you first came to Christ, when you had a quote-unquote conversion experience. Is this the experience of your life today? Are you walking with a heart of repentance, of love towards God and love towards your fellow man? When you see that the witness of the works of Jesus Christ, do you cease comparing yourselves with yourselves? Do you stop trying to measure yourself and say, well, I'm better, I'm better than this person in this area, but I, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so much worse than that person and in this other area. Do you instead realize that the call of Christ, the example of Christ is complete and utter holiness. That the call is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And that the second command is like it, that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. The example in all of this is Jesus. Now, I don't know about you. Well, I, I actually, I do know about you. Because I know about me. And I have not done that for one second of my life. That the works 
of Jesus Christ cause me, and I pray that they would cause you to run to Jesus for the forgiveness that can be found only in his perfect sacrifice. For the righteousness that you could never attain, not for one second. That you would know that the only basis, the only way that we can stand, the only way that we are not obliterated and will not be obliterated on the day of judgment and cast into eternal hellfire for the, the just punishment of our sins, our only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So do we look, do you look to the witness of Christ and rejoice? Or will you look to the witness of Christ and be damned? Let's pray together.